Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman for our second episode of the week. And hey, you know, we've mentioned that our producer, John Hayes, Penn State guy and Bruce, uh, so is Wednesday, Thursday morning, you get on a plane. How do you get from L.A. to State College? That's not the easiest route. No, the there's not a direct flight. We, I have to actually my flight. I'm leaving the house at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. Um, our big noon crew is doing something with Kevin Hart, the the movie star. And uh, so that'll be fun. I've never met him before. So you're doing something uh, with Kevin Hart at Penn State. Yes, I think Kevin's, Kevin Hart's actually from Philadelphia, I don't, but he's got a show there. So a few of us from Big Noon are going to uh, to get to meet him. And and uh, all right, so, so I'm gonna I'm gonna round. Sorry, I'm gonna round table it here with Bruce and John. I don't expect anybody on here to say Penn State's going to beat Ohio State. What I want to know is, do you expect do you expect this to still be a game in the fourth quarter? I do actually. And I'm not saying this because I'm hoping to keep ratings alive for the company, but <laughs> I do because I think Penn State has enough physicality and I feel like they have enough athletes on both sides of the ball where, you know, they were embarrassed at, at Michigan two weeks ago. I mean, just like they were whipped on both sides of the ball. I think they will respond to that and be challenged. I'm not saying Sean Clifford is going to play uh, like Josh Allen and play an amazing game. But I think they were embarrassed on both sides of the ball. And I think that they will be ready for this. They have enough athletes to keep this competitive. And I'm not saying they're going to win the game, but I think it will be a game going into the fourth quarter. We're on the uh, the Sean Clifford roller coaster that every Penn State fan has been on for the last five, six years at this point. Right? Can't complete a pass on the road against Michigan. Big Ten Player of the Week at home against Minnesota. <laughs> so, what are you going to get this weekend from from Clifford? I think he's he's comfortable at home. That's that's the really nice thing about this matchup, right? When as a Penn State alum, a fan of the program, whenever you see uh, Ohio State on the home schedule, you say to yourself, "This is a winnable football game." Some of the best moments in in modern Penn State history uh, are beating Ohio State at home. And with an experienced quarterback, my only issue is, and Bruce, I know this is not your fault, but it's a noon kick, right? And it, this noon kick, I, I hope it doesn't take juice out of the stadium. If it was any other program, I would say Beaver Stadium wouldn't be rocking at noon. But because it's Ohio State, I've got faith in the, the students and the fan base to get there and, and be loud. And and give Ohio State what? Would this is this Ohio State's first true test of the season? Yes, it is. I mean, it, it absolutely is. I to 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 John's point, I was about the Sean Clifford road versus home. Sean Clifford at home is completing over sixty six percent of his passes. Sean Clifford on the road is completing under fifty five percent of his passes. Hmm. I think the point about noon versus night game. I mean, obviously, when we think of the whiteout at Penn State, it's a night game and. And it, it always looks amazing on TV. I've only been there for one of them. And actually, it was an Ohio State game that Ohio State won uh, in, at, at State College. But, um, you know, I was at the Texas-Alabama game that kicked off at 11 a.m. That place was rocking. You know, Bruce goes to one of these games every week. He can tell us. Like, everybody thinks going into it that it might be a sleepy crowd. But because it's usually a big game, I feel like the fans are up for it. The only thing with that is, like... Coaches I know in the Big Ten, 
the they just talk about a whiteout at Penn State at night very differently. It's like yeah. that is a thing to them. So I, you know, I don't want to kind of gas John up here, but I kind of agree with him on that. There was a moment in I didn't watch much of the Penn State Minnesota game, but there was a catch. Who made the one handed catch, John? Do you remember? Mitchell Tinsley, I think, right? The the when they showed the first replay of it, just like the backdrop of the whiteout and him catching it in front of this entire it was it's one of the coolest like visual things on TV in college football. It absolutely is. And I'll, and I'll give you a you could call this a homer take or, or a, an optimist take. And that is the good vibes from that whiteout game last Saturday get to carry right over all week yeah. long into practice. You, you get to use the momentum off of that win. The Michigan embarrassment. At this point, after a whiteout game at night where you take care of Minnesota and do so easily, that feels like a month ago at this point. I think that kind of helps the the program as well. But Vegas says what? This is more than a two-touchdown line. Yeah. And I I think that's fair um, just based on how good Ohio State is. But if if Penn State – and I'm curious, Bruce, what you think about this. You've seen the, the program up close. If Penn State has a strength, it might be their secondary. Uh, Joey Porter Jr. is somebody that I, I think is going to be a first-round draft pick. And when you think about Ohio State's strength throwing the football, maybe Penn State's secondary could, can step up and play well in this one. Yeah, I think that's – I mean, Joey Porter Jr. is 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 super athletic. He's got all the measurables that the NFL really likes. I think the question to me is going to be how much pressure – can Penn State, which has traditionally been really good at getting after the quarterback in the last few years. Um, I know they're in like the middle of the pack in the Big Ten right now in sacks. You know, I think if you're a Penn State fan, and I know this from talking to the coaches a couple weeks ago when I saw them, it's like, all right, how many big steps is 11 going to take from the beginning of the year to now? Because he's one of those guys, one of the few guys, like he might be, to think about this, he might be as talented as any defensive player who's going to be on the field in this game, right? I would, I would argue he's more talented than any linebacker Ohio State has right now. I mean, he's, you know, and so games like this, I think, are really interesting to see what happens when stars, you know, like stars can can be born in this kind of game, right? And I, to me, that's that's what I want to see because I, the other day. When I say the other day, I mean like two weeks ago when we saw him at, at um, you know, in Ann Arbor, nobody looked like they stepped up for them. And now you want to see, okay, what's going to happen here? Are we going to see it? You know, somebody, whether it's one of the, fre- you know, one of the freshman running backs, um, you know, or is it, you know, is it, you know, is it going to be Abdul Carter who's going to just play lights out and take over and, and have some, honestly, have some Michael, have a Micah Parsons kind of moment. Maybe wishful thinking on my part, just because I want to see an Ohio, a dramatic Ohio State game for the first time. Uh, but I, I do think this this could be a really good game. If it's not, if Ohio State just goes and boat races them, then I'm going to probably join Bruce on the Ohio State National Championship bandwagon because um, I just, for all the reasons we just said, like, I always think, you know, C.J. Strauss puts up these huge numbers I don't know why it just feels like he's always playing at home. Like, I just feel like every time I turn on the TV, Ohio state's playing at the horseshoe and CJ Strauss throwing for a ton of touchdowns, doing it on the road in that environment against the guys you just talked about. Like that would be, that would be really impressive. Um, 
Sticking in the Big Ten, there's a kind of a off-the-field storyline I wanted to bring up. Iowa's having a pretty rough year, a, a very rough year. Um, and I just feel like Kirk Ferentz has always been pretty beloved at Iowa to the point where I kind of stepped in it. It was almost a decade ago now, and putting him on that worst coaches list. Because they were at a period where they were just going like seven and five. They had a one, four and eight year. And it was like, no, 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 we we're Iowa. We know what, who we are. And, and Kirk is us and all that, but man, they are, they are really down on him this year. And, and understandably. So his son is running one of the worst offenses in the history of offenses. And he had a weird moment at his press conference this week. This is Kirk, not Brian, the son. Kirk. Yeah. Where he mentioned that I, that I guess a reporter after the um, Iowa, after the Ohio state game, really, you know, asked him some tough questions and Kirk said, felt like I was he, first, he complimented his own players for the way they handled the media afterward. And then he said, you know, I felt like I was being interrogated the other day and you know, that that's part of the job and that's tough. But then I went home at night and I thought, well, at least I'm not that guy, you know, I, I'd rather be in my role position than that guy as insinuating that the reporter is just like a miserable human being. And, in my experience, usually when the coach goes after the re- media, the fan base is 100% or maybe 99% going to rally around the coach. I didn't see that this week. I think that they're sick of the excuses and the basically the downplaying of just how bad this is. Yeah, and I don't know if, if where Kirk Ferentz was going was like more of a man in the re- arena kind of vibe or not. Um, I would assume that's probably where it was directed, but – Look, the reality is this, and and Scott Docterman, our colleague at The Athletic, who's as good a beat writer as there is in the country, not just on the Iowa beat, and you know, he's written extensively on it, um, including, you know, in the past six months. And, you know, I, I think what is, like, it is such the elephant in the room. I mean, they are last in the country in offense. They're also, like, last in the Big Ten in offense by, like, almost a you know, close to a full yard per play, which is staggering to be that much worse than the uh, next worst. Especially when you think of some of the other teams in that conference right now. Yeah. And so, I, you know, just from looking at it, like Brian, you know, like Iowa's offense has gotten worse each of the last four years, like in terms of yards per play. And you look at it and go, okay, well, quarterback play has been very shaky. Well, his son is not just the offense coordinator. He's the quarterback's coach. And I I think that when you watch them play, you're looking at it going, man, if they get down by like nine points in the first half, if you're an Iowa fan or if you're even anyone in the building, you're like, yeah, this game's probably over. You know, just because they are just like they have a really good – they have a couple of really good tight ends, and they've traditionally been very good up front on the O-line, but – it has been so suspect with the passing game. And where I go to this is um, I think it's get, it gets harder and harder for them because of now it's not, it's like this such so much, this punchline, you know, like who's the, who's the number one receiver in the big 10, Charlie Jones at Purdue. Yep. Who's like tripled his output at Who Purdue. escaped from Iowa. Yeah. And basically half a year, Charlie Jones has like more receptions and yards than he had in a whole year um, in Iowa city. And so when you start, like, I think it would be very easy for any, any coach 
to recruit against Iowa if you're looking for a receiver and go like, remember what happened to Charlie Jones? They wouldn't even give him the ball. And then he goes to Purdue and all of a sudden he's an all-conference receiver and the NFL's looking at him. And I just think that will make it that much harder for them with the status quo. And the sense I have is if um, unless Kirk Ferentz is going to step down, I don't, you know, I can't imagine there's going to be a change in the offense. And Oh, sure. there has, there has to be there. You just cannot bring this back out next year. Um, Why not? Well, that brings leads to the question. I remember. So remember, I mean, it's been an interesting couple of years in Iowa city. It wasn't that long ago. It was the summer of 2020. There was a huge scandal involving Kirk Ferentz's program where the strength coach, Chris Doyle, you know, all these former players came out and uh, accused, um, you know, mainly uh, Doyle, but also Brian Ferentz got brought into it um, uh, of, you know, racial mistreatment. They fired Doyle. I don't, did they punish Brian Ferentz at all? I don't remember. Certainly they didn't fire him. And Kirk, as always, you know, nothing happened to him. But there was talk at the time that, well, maybe he's going to retire soon anyway. And, you know, I look back at it now. He could have rode off to the sunset last year after a 10 win season and a Big Ten, you know, division championship. He came back. And I feel like this season is really putting a dent in his legacy, you know, like and I don't really see a way to turn it around because because of what you just said. Is he willing to fire his son or what is Maybe more, I guess the better question is, would his son be willing to kind of bite the bullet and, and step down? And would it and it will really make that big a difference at the end of the day? Like, it's not like he's going to then hire an air raid coach to come in. Yeah, I mean, but there's certainly guys who are really good in the play action game who you could say, all right, we're going to go in that direction. I mean, they've played seven games. They've thrown two touchdown passes. I mean, <laughs> that... And you have really good tight ends. That's not just they, – they have two really good tight ends, right? They – I mean – While you've been talking, I've been looking up. So they are averaging 3.89 yards per play. And the, and I'm just going through the years here of, like, trying to find Power 5 teams that might have been worse than that. Kansas in 2020 was one. And it's funny because we talk about Wake Forest as being so great on offense now. But in 2014, Dave Clawson's first season, they were dead last – in the country at an even even lower 3.38 but those are the only ones i could find like this is historically bad well i'm the historically bad as i was starting to say two touchdown passes in seven games that's not as a academy you know triple option team you know like look at air uh army has thrown five touchdown passes air Oof. force has thrown six navy has thrown six they're not even got half of how many uh, the the triple option teams have thrown. It's just like it's. Staggering. I think it's time to find out if Gary Barta has any backbone. I mean, he's the guy who gave Kirk Ferentz his enormous contract with all those bonuses, and um, and he is the one who is frankly responsible for the fact that this nepotism is even allowed because it's not technically allowed. Uh, he can't be Kirk Ferentz cannot cannot be Brian Ferentz's. Uh, boss so the way they get around that is brian parents reports to gary barda so technically gary barda could just fire him but it, the notion is that he would never do that to kirk so uh which is more likely to happens to yeah a new play caller in college station at the end of the year or a new play caller in iowa city college station and 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 the reason i say that is in the sec you can't 
there's just different expectations. You know, AM is supposed to be competing for national championships. They're so sure of that. Him. They're not firing Jimbo. Jimbo no, 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 no. But but Jimbo knows, you know, Jimbo knows like they gotta do something. I think they gotta do something because this they gotta be, you know, they're expected to be a top ten team. Whereas Kirk Ferentz has basically made a career out of win seven games, go to a bowl game, and if you every couple of years he's gonna you know rise up and have a year like last year, and and people are pretty happy with that. But and that I think that's why you know why he said he felt interrogated the other day. He's not used to this level of scrutiny. Uh, he's been mostly uh, been able to do what he does for twenty two years without much criticism and scrutiny so if he goes four and eight this year like look they they're gonna play your alma mater who's who's really bad right now i think they are really bad but until you brought it up i didn't realize that like northwestern's bad offense is still significantly better than i was northwestern is one and six then after that they play at purdue they play wisconsin at minnesota and then nebraska i mean it's not a stretch to think that they could go four and eight this year does that force Gary Barta's hand or is your best hope if you're if you're a Hawkeye fan that somebody in the NFL will try to hire Brian away as either O-line coach or tight ends coach who who would do that after the you know given what's going on right now I, I think I think I'm the way this the will end the NFL Kirk Ferentz yeah. is a very well respected guy I think the way that here my best guess of the way this ends is Brian takes one for the team and go and maybe you're right. Maybe Brian goes and gets himself a NFL. Uh, Brian's not re- resigning for nothing because no. I, but he could I, go. I, he could go get get a fresh start somewhere else. Yeah, go be an O line coach somewhere. What? Let's start somewhere else. Where? It's got to be in the NFL. You just said you think go, an NFL team might hire him. It's got to. Yeah, it, I think it would have to be that. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's. I don't think I don't know Brian. You know Brian a little bit. I would think he's sensitive to, he doesn't want to put his dad in the position of having to make that decision. So I think he takes the decision out of his hands. Now, the other question would be, does Kirk right off into the sun? Does he say enough's enough? I'm done. I think that seems less likely because he wouldn't want to leave on such a down note. Yeah, I, my, I agree with you on that. So, Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second, but now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, 
making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So, post your job for free at linkedin.com slash audible. That's linkedin.com slash audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I got one more Big Ten coaching thing I want to mention. And then we can talk about, we can get to the mailbag. Um, So Mel Tucker, things aren't going so well this year. And... I've noticed there's a lot of, in our stories, there's a lot of, it has to be Michigan fans, just a lot of piling on Mel Tucker about that contract and, and how quickly he's he's uh, fallen back. I'm of the opinion of they so overachieved last year that like it doesn't really matter to me what happens with Michigan State this year. But what made me take notice was I saw that Kenneth Walker has like risen to the new favorite for NFL Rookie of the Year maybe offensive rookie of the year. Right. If, if he didn't get Kenneth Walker last year, I bet he doesn't have that massive contract right now. Like I think Kenneth Walker, I think what we're seeing with this, with this distance now is like that guy was an amazing running back and he is the main reason why they went 11 and two last year. I don't disagree with that, but what I would say, there's a couple of things that kind of fall in line with this. And again, it comes into like, you have a player who you realize is better than maybe the place that had him or you create an environment where he flourishes. I mean, same thing. You know, it's like, oh, well, if you didn't luck into Joe Burrow, well, Joe Burrow turned out to be a great player. You know, like... Uh, you, who's saying... You're saying people are saying Ed Ogeron lucked into Joe Burrow? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's oh, that. Oh, he had to go get him. I, I know. Mean, other like, people wanted Joe Burrow. But we brought up this the other day, speaking about Jimbo again. You know, Jameis turned out to be a program changer mm-hmm. without Jameis, I'm pretty sure they're not winning a national title and he's not getting this contract. Yeah. But there's a difference between, I agree, but he, he didn't like Jim, Jameis didn't just show up at his door, you know, like give him credit for getting him and developing him. Well, there, but give, I thought your point was more that he's never really been able to replicate that with somebody else. No, I'm saying, look, give credit to the coaches for creating an environment where this guy flourishes. That's what I'm saying. Look, I know one of the guys who was on that Michigan State staff and back, you know, they were raving about Kenneth Walker going into the spring. I mean, they knew they had a real good sense of what they had is all I'm saying. Um, Like their old running back coach who now, you know, Will Piegler, who now coaches at Florida, was gushing about Kenneth Walker, you know, like before I didn't even before they ever had a spring game or anything like that. So. I think they were they were on to what they had. And look, their their passing game had other elements. I mean, their their quarterback had played well. The receivers were pretty good. You know, the the ironic thing is Mel Tucker has been known as one of the better defensive co- defensive backs coaches in the country and really good defensive mind. And they really did it with offense. I'm just looking here at the so basically Brees Hall's injury reset the offensive rookie of the year odds, and it's just interesting. This is such a wide range. This isn't just like necessarily like 
the, the entire first team All American list of college football players last year. Seth Walker is now first, followed by Damian Pierce, who was never never really became a star at Florida. And, and in fact, part of people's frustration with Dan Mullen was they didn't use him more. He's number he's right after Walker. Chris Olave, stud. We we knew that was coming. Bailey Zappi uh, emerging there. I assume mostly because he now has the opportunity. He had a, he had uh, a rough game after a yeah. fast start. Night, followed by drake london who we were gushing over last year before his injury and then brian robinson jr who waited his turn got his opportunity at alabama then i mean he's lucky to be he's so fortunate to be on the field right now so um yeah that, that's all i wanted to say about that real quick this weekend we talk about penn state ohio there's a lot of good games this weekend I, the reason I brought up Mel Tucker was because it's the Michigan State Michigan weekend. He is actually two and zero against Michigan. I don't think we like his chances of getting to three and zero. So we're all anticipating this huge Tennessee Georgia game next week, huge. But first, Tennessee plays Kentucky, and Kentucky's five and two. Uh, I don't. I'm not picking Kentucky to win that game necessarily, but it's not impossible. John Hayes brought up this uh, hypothetical. We'll, we'll play the game. Ready? Which would you be more likely to bet on? So it's a play again. They play Kentucky and then they play uh, Georgia at Georgia. Let me just give you the rest of Tennessee's schedule real quick. Um, clearly Vanderbilt's in there. Um, they play Missouri at home um, at South Carolina and at Vandy, which would you more likely bet on right now? Would we be more willing to bet on Tennessee goes 12 and 0 Tennessee loses two games. Ooh. Um, and the two games could include, could include the, uh, the sec title game or no, no, because if they lose to Georgia, they're probably not going to sec championship game. So basically what you're saying is, they're either going to stumble against Kentucky, is Kentucky, Georgia, I guess technically Mizzou, or at South Carolina. All right, know. two of those four. Uh, and I'm leaning towards saying they go undefeated over the, that option. I don't think so, they lose twice. I mean, I think they're much better than those other three teams. Doesn't mean you can't get upset, but like I'm. You know, I have to kind of talk myself into Tennessee, Kentucky being a gate, a big game because I kind of think Tennessee will just blow them out because I don't think Kentucky's offense can keep up with them. I don't, you know, like Kentucky's, you know, like I, Tennessee's offense has definitely, you know, given up a lot of yards, you know, in some of these shootouts. So it, that part, I guess, wouldn't shock me if, you know, we're kind of waiting for Will Levis to play like, you know, top five pick guy. Um, I The thing that I do wonder about a little bit is we have seen Chris Rodriguez, who missed the first month of the season, get really warmed up. And this could be one of those games where he, where he does kind of go off. And that may be, th- again, it sounds like I'm trying to talk myself into <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking the two losses. That's my more likely opportunity. So what are and the two you're picking here? You're picking Georgia and Kentucky or Georgia and South Carolina? I think South Carolina could be tricky. Uh, they are playing well. You're Tennessee believing in Spencer Rattler? 
No, the funny thing is they actually uh, beat A&M the other day with him not even really doing that much. It was, you know, I mean, that game was, I actually, I actually watched it like a couple days later after hearing Andy and Ari talk about it for 20 minutes. And like, that was a weird game. Like it actually, I mean, there was that crazy fumble where it bounced off the helmet and, and, you know, obviously there was a kickoff return at the beginning. Like South Carolina found a way to win that without necessarily having a huge game from Spencer Rat. Actually, now that I'm mentioning this, they can't beat Tennessee. Sorry. Uh, so it would have to be Kentucky. But I just – I'm not ready to sit here and say Tennessee wins at Georgia and goes undefeated. So I'm taking the two loss. If I told you that South Carolina would be a top 25 team with Spencer Rattler having five touchdowns and eight picks, you would be you quite would surprised. Yeah, yeah, quite surprised. But I feel like that's what where Shane Beamer, you know, late last season too, like he, his teams, they're frankly, I hate to say it's a cliche, but they play Beamer ball. Like they make opportunities um, besides just, needing a quarterback to throw for 350 yards. So, you know, he's, he's getting the most out of a team that was, I think picked to maybe second to last in the division. Like nobody had really expectations for this team this year. What I think they are good at is, is, um, you know, kind of beating quite honestly, beating bad teams. Because, <laughs> like, seriously, like they, if you go through who they've beaten Georgia state, they lost by two touchdowns at Arkansas. They lost by 41 at home against Georgia. Then they beat Charlotte, who's terrible on defense, just fired their coach. Then they beat South Carolina State. They won at Kentucky. That was um, the big one. That was the big one. But, you know, like in that game, you know, there's no Will Levis in that game. So you're saying the whole thing's a mirage? Um, I'm not saying the whole thing is a mirage, but like, you know, like that's the part where I'm looking at it going – you know, if Will Levis is playing, I don't know if Kentucky's only being held to 14 points, right? I will say I mean, this. I would not expect South Carolina. To, I would think the ceiling, and this is even with a game against Vanderbilt on the schedule, is 7-5. and five. I don't think they're – those last three games, I don't think they're winning at Florida. I don't think they're beating Tennessee, and I certainly don't think they're winning at Clemson. I, I just think that whole thing is like, you know, they have one win over a, over a team with a winning record. And it was the team that didn't have their starting quarterback that did that particular game. So I think that gives me a little pause. Look, I think Shane Beamer and that staff have done a really nice job there, but I guess that's it's a long winded. When I looked at that, I was like, mm, I'm not really seeing South Carolina even there beating Tennessee. So it comes down to, do I think the aforementioned Will Levis in Kentucky and Chris Rodriguez, can they beat Tennessee? And yeah, I think they can beat them, but I don't think they'll beat them. So you're going undefeated. I'm going well of those two options. I'm not thinking they're going to pick beat Georgia, but correct. Like I'm leaning more towards that, I guess. Okay, it is time for the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to the audiblepod at gmail.com. We start with Jerry Swider in Sherman Oaks, California. Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day had seamless transitions into their first head coaching jobs, while Brent Venables and Marcus Freeman are struggling with their transitions. What explains the difference? Did the surprise departures of Brian Kelly from Notre Dame and Lincoln Riley from Oklahoma disrupt those programs more than we imagined? 
is as simple as offensive coordinators making the transition more readily than defensive coordinators. Well, it, both Lincoln and Ryan Day, you know, had an apprenticeship there. Like Lincoln was the OC for Bob Stoops and he learned under Bob and knew that place. And he got his quarterback in place and Ryan Day got his quarterback in place. Um, Marcus Freeman, they've had issues on offense. They've had quarterback issues. Brent Venables, you know, there's obviously there was a game where Dylan Gabriel couldn't play, but they've had, to me, they've had even bigger issues at OU, right? Um, I just think it's it's the other guys were, were, more, were more in position and maybe a little more confident in the identity they had to hit the ground running and do their thing. Um, and also, by the way, the, those two guys, I think it's significant is they're play callers. That's their show on offense, right? And so they coach the quarterbacks, they run the offense, they call the plays. And so I think they're they're probably more hands on Marcus Freeman. And look, I don't I don't blame Al Golden, the defensive coordinator, but I just think that they probably have less control over what's going on. And I don't think it's like a black and white thing of this is exactly why this is. I think it's like there's reasons that factor into a lot of reasons factor into why Brent Venables has had such a rocky transition and why Marcus Freeman has had such a rocky transition. But I think the reasons why Lincoln and Ryan, you know, they were really hands-on and they stayed really hands-on. And I think in both guys' cases, they kept the best pieces. Uh, Ryan Day kept the best pieces of what Urban Meyer did and kind of purge some of the things that probably weren't so good, right? And Lincoln Riley kept a lot of the best pieces of what Bob had, um, and I think that worked. Whereas, I'm not saying Brent Venables didn't, you know, but he had, you know, he was able to keep Bill Biedenboe, but not that much else was was the same at OU, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, that, that would be my kind of three cents on this. I think, and we've talked about this before, but I think that the – um, excitement over Marcus Freeman and, and, you know, wanting to quickly have an answer after Brian Kelly. I just don't think people there took into account that he'd only been there for one year, right? Like Lincoln Riley had a, a more time than that under Bob Stoops. Um, he's not, it wasn't that long an apprenticeship is what I'm saying. Very young coach, um, had only been a power five coordinator for one year. Uh, and, probably had has a lot of learning to do. I doesn't mean he can't become a great head coach, but he's just probably got a bigger learning curve than than some of those other guys had. I also think Stu, like if you look at the hand that he's got there on offense, they had an unproven quarterback, they had a they didn't have a deep group of running backs and they don't have a good group of receivers. I mean, honestly, they smell a little bit like Iowa where they have really good tight ends. Yeah, they've been really good on the O line, but the rest of like the skill guys, if it came turned into a seven on seven game, I don't like Notre Dame's chances. But is no. that why? But they went eleven and one line. Like they were winning 10, 11 games, well, they twelve games had, well, every year. Tyron Williams is not there anymore. Yeah, right? they, like there were some pieces that left. You had a quarter. You know, you had guys who played a lot, and then all of a sudden the new guys took over. And who's the difference maker at Notre Dame? You know, I don't know that there is that guy right now. They've they've had games where they ran the ball well, but I think the most talented running back they felt like they had tore his Achilles like in the summer. Um, they don't have a deep group of receivers. So you add that up with an un inexperienced quarterback, 
And I think you're getting a really you – know, they, should they have lost to Marshall regardless? No. I mean, it's it's been a weird year, you know. Um, so it's a good question, though. I, I get it. I, I, I imagine there's more examples that probably go to the counter of this, right, um, of somebody who kind of – you know, because Brent Venables, yeah, he had coached at Oklahoma, but it had been a long time since he had been at OU. I don't know if he's bringing more Dabo stuff – back to Norman. Um, I mean, another question would be, how come all the the Dabo guys have struggled so much as head coaches? This next one has at least some overlap. It's John in, is it Louisville, North Carolina, or Louisville? It's got to be Louisville, right? Louisville. Over the last five years, I've started traveling to various stadiums about once or twice a year. Last year, I went to two Pac-12 stadiums, including the Rose Bowl, to watch UCLA. The stadium was amazing. The history was awesome. The crowd was a total dud. I'm not surprised. Um, this past weekend, I went to South Carolina. That place was electric. So I guess I've got three questions. Are there any crowds outside of the SEC and Big Ten that measure up to those conferences' crowds? And I prefer you not to answer Clemson because they're basically an SEC school. What are the most overrated crowds and stadiums? What are the most underrated crowds and stadiums so i was asked about the underrated one um because i tweeted there was a did you see that cool drone video uh mike gundy tweeted out of oklahoma states um yeah it was well go find it. it's really cool and i said i just tweeted out and said that is that boone pickens one more underrated um environments out there it's a great atmosphere and so somebody said what's up what's your five top five hidden gems and so Curious your opinion on this. This is Tell me what your five were. I didn't. Read okay, it. so I said I I didn't, it didn't really like what what is a hidden gem, right? So I just said seats stadiums that seat less than sixty thousand. Number one, Austin, where I just was, probably recency. I totally agree with that. That would be my number one hidden gem for that too. Number two, Rice Eccles Stadium at Utah. That would be in my top five as well. Number three, Boone Pickens. Number four, Nippert Stadium, which I have never. Not- Never you ever been? I have never been there. I mean, look, I wouldn't have said this five, ten, fit. My first ever college football game ever was at Nippert Stadium. They played Rutgers. You know, this is a long, long time ago. Nobody would have described that as a hidden gem. It's it's because of what Luke Fickle has done. Um, it was also rocking when Brian Kelly had that undefeated season. Number five, there's a lot I could have put here, but I put McLean Stadium at Baylor. Okay. Any um, that I, you think were a gross oversight there? A gross oversight. So the my answer to number one: Are there any crowds out that measure up to those? Um, the I'll say this: the loudest stadium I've ever been in doesn't exist anymore. College stadium, and that was the old Orange Bowl. Um, mm-hmm. When they would play Florida State, it was different than any other place I can. Um, it was you know, it was the definition of hostile. Yeah, it was truly uh, hostile. Like it was unsafe to be in the stands sometimes. Um, the the loudest stadiums I've ever been not the part of this question I think is CenturyLink or whatever the Seahawks are calling their stadium now. I went yeah. there for the for the NFC title game. I guess it was when they played the Niners, and it was insanely loud. Although Arrowhead too is an amazing mm-hmm. environment. Um, the place, and I've talked about this before that. Every time, even it, it always happens, even before I've even said it. Like, I have a special feeling for Lane Stadium where Virginia yeah, I was just about to say that. Just, um, I don't, you know, like, I don't like the music, but I like, but that song 
you know, it just, as soon as you can hear the first, the basically the first, you know, it starts beating yeah. and it just, you get, you get so many goosebumps from that place. And I think you and I once were there for something. I remember we walked the campus and it's also a beautiful part of the country. Mm-hmm. So like it's a really nice campus. That has, I don't want to say that has nothing to do with the stadium, but it's like, it's a pretty, pretty awesome place to spend a fall Saturday. Um, I would say in terms of just like, you know, really, um, you know, like really different, uh, you know, and I don't know if this is, we're talking about SEC and Big Ten, so you're kind of, you know, there's so many good places in both of them. Um, Well, first of all, Notre Dame, like, let's just go ahead and say that, right? I mean, that's a, just the history and the gorgeous touchdown. Yeah, I mean... And it's a good crowd. Uh, they've, they've, it wasn't always, they did a renovation a few years ago that made it louder. Um, well, that's like Texas, you know, credit to Chris Del Conte, the AD there. He has really ramped up the energy and the, and the environment. And that is a much more, you know, the thing about Boone Pickens and Iowa's like this too, as well as, um, as well as OU, that the sidelines are so tight that you can't have cart cam there. Mm-hmm can't fit and as a sideline reporter i think it's the roughnecks i think that's what oklahoma state calls them where they you know they have like basically the padded um padded walls around the stadium and they are just banging them constantly um in in terms of your um in terms of your criteria for underrated i would put the carter at, at tcu it's a really cool stadium it is um i also considered kansas state Okay. Um, um, there's one you left out, which okay. I think I, when I say you go, yeah, that's a good one. Is is because I know you and I were at Boise State for Chip mm-hmm. Kelly's first game there, and that's a really cool environment as well. Yeah, I mean, I would. It's very small. I wouldn't say it's loud necessarily. It's like thirty five thousand seats, but it uh-huh. is just a cool part of the country. And now you and I went there when it was peak Chris Peterson. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what it's like these days, but um, what I was going to say is he said outside- out one obvious one that I've been to a lot of times and I definitely wanted to, to acknowledge it because okay. it is so unique in the town, the feel around the place. I, you know, it's a place I love going. It's a pain in the ass to get to from here, but it's Morgan. Mm, I, I mean, oh, I thought the way you were setting that up, pain in the ass to get to, I thought for sure you were going to say Washington state. No, I Washington State's like got some charm to it, but but like you go to Morgantown and that place rocks, you know, and yeah. it's like um I would, you know, if there was a drinking contest per you know, pre-game, I would put up you know, the West Virginia fans up against any of them. Um and then the other thing I was gonna say is I know he said outside the SEC and Big Ten, but there is a less obvious SEC one that should definitely it's it's it may be the loudest I've ever been in, and that's Mississippi State because they ring those cowbells, and the clanging it's deafening. It's absolutely deafening. If it's, especially if it's a really big game, like there's no difference. In, I don't know what the decibel level is, but in terms of I can't hear the person next to me, which I've had many times in the press box at Alabama or LSU or Auburn, is also true at Mississippi State, even though it's a much smaller stadium. All right, last one from. Tim, Bruce and Stewart, why hasn't there been more discussion about Gary Patterson 
moving back into the head coaching ranks with either Nebraska, Wisconsin, or Arizona State, especially Nebraska with its Big 12 past and their need to strengthen recruiting in Texas, and Patterson's past ability to restart and grow the progress from the grassroots. Would he ever be coaxed out of his position with Steve Sarkeesian's staff at Texas? I mean, I'm sure he would leave that for a head coaching job, but uh, are there any other open jobs he may be a good fit for, like Georgia Tech or Colorado? Well, he has been in the mix, I think, for Nebraska. When we did our coaching search uh, story initially after they fired Scott Frost, uh, his name was one I included in there. And talking to people inside the Texas program and as well as some folks around Austin, they've been impressed by Gary Patterson. They feel like his perspective has maybe changed a little bit or shifted. And they kind of feel like there's a Gary Patterson 2.0 in terms of how he might do things a little differently. Um, maybe backed away from certain things. And question is, you know, would the AD at Nebraska feel like the timing is right for Gary Patterson? He obviously is very successful, did an amazing job. He has a statue for crying out loud at TCU. Um, we'll see if the fit is right. I could also see Colorado being tempted in terms of Gary Patterson's a big name. They're awful on defense. Gary Patterson's one of the best defensive minds in all of football. And I know he's had an impact at Texas behind the scenes. So I don't know if he would be the guy at Georgia Tech. Um, I don't know if he would be tempted, especially with Georgia Tech having questionable commitment to football, if that's something Gary Patterson would want. I don't know if he would look at Colorado with its conference instability, you know, going forward and think, okay, that's, you know, a place I want to live and coach. But, you know, Nebraska, given, you know, his ties as a, you know, as a Kansas native and, he knows the history of that program. That might be tempting for him if it if it plays out that way. Aren't you concerned at all that Gary Patterson, the TCU, you know, got so mediocre over the last four or five years of his career? Or you're like, nah, he just needed a fresh start and he'd be a really good hire. Um, I would be concerned about that. I would. But I would also, if you're Trev Alberts, the AD, or whoever AD talks to him, I do think you'd want to hear some of the stuff that, I've heard from some Texas staffers from from being around Gary Patterson to see, okay, what's different and how things have changed. Because, again, the guy knows defense and he knows – also, by the way, recruited a team that is loaded with speed. I mean, you watch this team that is undefeated right now. That has Gary Patterson's fingerprints all over it. Now, the question is, like, what would you – like, I don't think it was Sonny, Sonny Cumbie's fault that the offense wasn't as good. I mean, there's some other factors – that played into it, but I think you'd want to hear that. So um, I wanted to tell you to have fun in state college and meeting Kevin Hart and all that good stuff. And we'll see you guys on Sunday.